0: Thank you, Brother Tilman, for that very powerful ministry there. I don't know about tomorrow. I don't even know about today. But I know who holds tomorrow and who holds my hand. What a comforting assurance. If only we would always live in that truth, the way we respond through things as they happen, be totally different. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the assurance that you are always with us. You have assured us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for the truth of the song we've just heard through the ministry of our brother Tillman. To be assured that you are indeed holding our hands We have no need to be worried about tomorrow because you are already there and you are holding our hands. Thank you. And now, Father, as I stand here inept, devoid of any information or knowledge of my own, any wisdom, I ask that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would indeed Allow me to simply disappear, and that your word would go forth as you have impacted me with it. May it do the same for your people this evening. These things, Father, I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. I need to begin with an apology. If you notice in your bulletin, it has spiritual self-discipline in ministry. I would prefer to say spiritual self-defense in ministry. Here's a question if, well, let me say it this way. If you were able to talk, I would have asked you a question. But you are so polite and uh, your decorum is so um, You won't answer if I ask you a question. But suppose I ask you, you've heard about Paul. How many of you think, just put your hand up and put it down before I see it. How many of you think that Paul was taller than you are? Uh Uh-huh. So all of you think that he was shorter than you. Here's the next question. How many of you think that he was heavier than you are? Thank you. Here's another question. Do you know that there are some Christians who believe that Christians should not smile? They don't say that, by the way. Should Christians have any cause to smile? I think of all people on the planet. We have the most reason to be joyful, to smile we have the best gift there ever was and reason for living. I want to eavesdrop with you in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 but since I'm jumping in the middle of the chapter I think it's only fair that I probably give a little background so that those of you who have read that so many times can get an appreciation for the context. Paul was he would have already written to the believers at Corinth some time earlier, and he was away from Corinth itself for approximately three years. And while he was away, the believers there, they were having some challenges. As a matter of fact, there were some believers there in Corinth who had some, there was at least a small group, very influential group, that um, challenged Paul's authority as an apostle. And so they were causing trouble in the church. (laughs) And so Paul was on his way back down from the northern part of Greece, heading down to Corinth, and he met Titus Who gave him the news It was good news And Paul expressed how delighted he was To hear that they were doing well In one respect And um, how it encouraged his own heart But when we think about Second Corinthians as a whole The whole issue by the way Would be in ministry And he was challenged In other words he was being attacked By a person's in the church. And he is going to respond to that throughout the book. Now it's also said about Second Corinthians that it is one of the most difficult books to interpret of Paul's letters. Very difficult because there is no systematic or doctrinal um, focus or use for that purpose in Second Corinthians. And so it is very personal, very, as we will see, in 2nd Corinthians, intensely emotional as Paul expressed um, his emotions in certain respect and even, you know, you might see the little fiery side of Paul in one regard. But that's Paul. And so as we go through this and when you look at the entire book in, its, in, in essence, we will find that the whole focus though was on ministry. Now I, I say this to you, if you are a Christian, you are in ministry. Do you agree? Well, let me put it another way. If you are a Christian, you should be in ministry. Yes? You sit up with so much enthusiasm, I'm almost beside myself. Well, here's it. If you are a Christian, you are a soldier for Christ. That sounds more military, you people who like to fight. Okay, which means that if you are a soldier, a soldier fights. As a matter of fact, the soldiers automatically have some other persons who see them as enemies. Agreed? What is most, I think, distasteful or discouraging is that when soldiers on the same side, same army, fighting one another. That is scary. That is dangerous. The soldiers on the same army should be having one another's back. All of those who are soldiers of Christ, in the army of Christ, are supposed to be having, looking ahead at the same enemy. So when I turn around, or when I'm in this, what do you call that hole that they're in when they're fighting? I, I heard in the back. Foxhole. All right, we had no fox on Andres, so you can understand why that was elusive, because I was say crab hole, but that won't work. All right, But you could understand why if you are a soldier of fighting and then the person behind you who you thought on the same team is aiming at you, it's a scary war. And so Paul is being attacked. But let me ask you, have you ever been attacked for because you were involved in ministry and the attack was geared at something about you in ministry? You haven't had that experience yet. Keep living. But can I tell you this? Um, About seven months ago, whether in the spirit or out of the spirit, I I cannot tell. But as I was assigned to a a place, and those who are familiar with the public service, the public service has, um, let's call it, a provision for, and I'm thinking teachers, Um, but it doesn't only apply to teachers. But a teacher can be away or off from duty if they are sick for 20 days, to 0 during the year. That 20 days, sometimes people hear 26 26 days. So they add another 6 days to the 20. And if they are ill, they will say that they are entitled to be sick because they have twenty sick days at their disposal. But that was put in there so that if you are sick, out of the twenty, six of them we call call in days. You don't have to provide a medical certificate. Just call in and say, I'm not feeling well today. You know, or have somebody call for you, and it will be noted as one of those out of the twenty. You can do a maximum of two days back to back, so you can call for tomorrow and Tuesday, saying I'm not well enough to come to work. Of course, it is accumulative. it adds up. After you would have exhausted your twenty, your six calling days, then every other day that you are absent, you must provide a medical certificate for the one day, the other 14. Even after you would have exhausted that, because some people do. If you go to your 21st day, you know, government Mm -hmm. will still pay you for that day. By the way, those first 20 days, let me say again, if you are out for those 20 days, you will still get your full salary. No problem. So that's why some people say... I'm entitled to be sick next week Thursday, you know, so I, I won't be well, you know, and so they might call ahead. As a supervisor, I'm responsible to record certain things. Here's a scenario, as I said a moment ago, in the spirit I'm not sure, but seven months ago. There are persons who are teachers who have been reassigned, which means that they are not carrying out the function of a teacher meaning that they are not actually teaching day-to-day. They're not planning a lesson, they're not teaching, they're not managing their classroom environment or doing those extracurricular activities related to the teaching. And a particular teacher says, well, I'm on my job description that I got from the Governor General says that I am a teacher. So teachers have some other, call it perks, Meaning that it's um, institutional leave. Let's use, for example, midterm. You may have heard about that sometimes. It's not so midterm budget, it's a different kind of midterm. Midterm break. Midterm breaks are for teachers who are teaching. Those persons who are teachers but not teaching, you do not get midterm break. You give, you're given something else called casual days, meaning you can apply. You have two per month. So you have two, two, how much that is a year? year? 24. Government took back two, so you get 10 a year. You know, you can spread it out however. Because someplace in the middle, you're probably going to take your vacation anyhow. Well, here's how it was. This particular person says that, well, since I'm not a teacher, um, I am a teacher, even though I'm not carrying out a teacher's responsibility or function from day to day, when midterm comes, I'm going to take my institutional leave. Now, my directives are that, no, you're not functioning as a teacher, so you can apply for two casual days and take those two days off. They said, no, they're not doing that. In that case, then, I need to submit a record to say that they came to work or they were absent, and if they came to work, they came to work on time. Well, in this case, the person did not come to work at all because they said that they were on their entitled institutional midterm break. So when they return, and since they did not apply for the casual day, I registered them as being absent, which I forwarded to HR. HR, yes, that's like the IRS, I mean, anyhow, I forwarded to HR. Um, so, of course, normally within the government system, it depends on when, what time they get the information, if you get it before the 15th of the month, they're very quick to deduct your salary for those days. If after the 15, most likely they will catch up with you the following month. Well, this person, of course, right after midterm, which was February, um, passed. They would have seen a deduction in salary by two days. And guess who they were upset with? You know, um, so they would have been accusing me of not being. One of them said, if it was more than one, said that that's not a good boss. A good boss would have kept the information until they got their records or sort of, so I could keep it for a year. But in the meantime, these persons choose to want to act one way. By the way, at the end of the year, the form that is filled out to evaluate them is not um, a teacher's form. It's a different form, a non-teacher evaluation form. If I were to fill out a teacher evaluation form, they would get zero. They would get a very poor rating because when I have to tick whether or not how effective they were in planning, since they didn't teach, they'll get zero. When I have to rate them in terms of how effective they were in their actual teaching, since they didn't actually teach, they will get zero, which is about 30% of the whole instrument. When I flip it over and deal with their classroom management, since they didn't have a class, they will get zero. But they didn't see the value of the other side, you know, and I'm looking down the road at the end of the year so that your evaluation could possibly, based on your performance, be in the up and up. But if you act contrary to the law, expect the boss to record and their consequences. When you do that, people row you, right? Now, as ministry people, as soldiers of the cross, and under the captain of Jesus Christ, each of you as a Christian supposed to be In ministry and I say ministry as a soldier. If you are not, that seems to be a contradiction of term. How could you say you are a Christian without ministry? By the way, everybody has a gift, right? Say yes, 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 and so the gift again, as I reminded some uh, people I had the privilege to speak with this morning, the gift is not for you, right? No, that is for somebody else Well, here is Paul He was the one who, let's call him the father of the church at Corinth Planted the church, left, was away for three years While he was there, they were growing And some people were complaining And some other people came in, some Judaizers These were some legalists you know, They're not so much concerned about, about challenging Paul with respect to Whether someone should be circumcised or not They had some different issue And they called and one of the things was um, And we will see And this is where I need to apologize I wanted to do the entire chapter 10 this evening And I had to repent Because I said there won't be nobody sitting there with me By the time I go through that So with your permission I will probably only do a few verses um, Before it gets dark Alright So would you please turn to chapter 10 For me in 2 Corinthians. I'll just read the entire chapter so you can get the whole picture and then I'm going to come back and just do a few verses with your permission. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I Paul myself and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I pour myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with much or such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent we do when present not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another they are without understanding but we will not boast beyond limits but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that, our, that your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area of influence. Verse 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, For the one whom the Lord commands. Up to end of verse 18. Let's go back to verse 1. I, Paul. Now, I'm very, let me call it, picky, pedantic about words in Scripture because I believe that everything has a particular meaning. And I notice Paul here saying, I, Paul, because earlier you would notice that he would have said, we, because he referred to himself as, as well as Titus, who would have been there with him. Because he's sending this letter, even this letter with Titus, back to Corinth, because he promised to visit with them. And so since he's doing a little stopover, he's sending this letter ahead of him with Titus. And he started off by saying, I, Paul. Now, Bohemian was there, this is me now. This is me, Paul. I, I, I talk with myself. And he starts off by saying that. By the way, I'm curious. Paul... Notice he never very seldom here used to uh, call himself Saul um, because I think when you translate it from Greek to Hebrew, Hebrew um, I think Saul had, uh, when you do the translation, it had a, the adjective there was a similar adjective that meant that it had an effeminate meaning so the poor don't want a body calling him soft. All right, so they're, a, they're on the effeminate side so we don't hear that Saul being used too much but he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, you see what comes after that when it says, I, whom I'm humble, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. I don't believe that's Paul's description of himself. That's what those people back there, that small segment inside uh, the church at Corinth, is saying about Paul. They say that he's humble when he comes here. He looks so quiet, you know, gentle and meek, you know. But, you know, when face to face with us, he's so humble. You you don't know anybody like that, right? And then when they leave, you hear them doing a breakdown. I mean, breaking up things. They're so rowdy, you know, and bold. You say, why don't you come tell me this to my face? So basically, these people are saying Paul is a chicken, you know, when he's present with them. And this is Paul's response to that. So Paul is being charged here of being a coward. Hmm. Have you ever been called a chicken? I mean, a coward. You know, and were you guilty? In ministry <laughs> for doing what you do? And You say, you, you're scared, you're leading that, and why don't you take the step? Why don't you do that? You are leading. And you say, no, I, I, as he says here, I prefer to, as Paul says, I myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He wants to be gentle. Now, we sing or used to sing, gentle Jesus, Meek and mild. Which chapter do you find that in? Which book? Thank you. But we've seen Jesus when he was not very gentle, right? And not meek when the occasion called for that. Here Paul addresses, and he's talking to the members of the church at Corinth, the incredible body of Christ, not to give him an occasion to exercise severe discipline, Severe discipline? Hmm. He had just expressed confidence in them in the previous chapter in general, and he believed that they would act in accordance with the rules of the gospel. But he could not say that about everyone, for there were some among them that were spoken with contempt against the authority and the claims of Paul as an apostle. You know, some people do that. They, The leaders... They will speak negatively about. They won't do that to the face, because you know they feel like, "Hi, I bless you," and when you're gone, bless you, huh? Sure. They will bless you in another way. But that that's people do that. Paul is saying, is defending this because people are not. These are the the body of believers that he would have shared initially brought the gospel to left. Away for a while, and things are going on. there are some good things as you read through the first part of this uh, particular book. But then again, there one, there's an element there, and Paul is specifically, so if you read through it, he says, "I whom I am humble when face to face with you, and bold towards you when I'm away." That's like you get hard mouth when you're here. But why are you come here and tell me that now? That's basically what they're charging Paul with. Paul seeks here to. Imitate the Redeemer when he talks about his meekness and gentleness, when among them, as opposed to being severe in his actions or speech. And however, some of the members of the Corinthian church interpreted Paul's action as being timid and afraid to exercise discipline. Ooh, that's, that's bad. Nobody likes discipline. You can imagine that. Discipline. Should you have discipline in the church? Yeah. But you know when you apply it, some people are going to get upset and they have friends who will get upset with you too. Mind you, they're not getting disciplined, but you discipline their friend. So that little crew go off in the parking lot and get on the celly, and they upset with you. They say, yeah, that's what they do, yeah, because if you're going to maintain the purity of the body, sometimes these things need to happen. This is in no way, by the way, necessarily implying that this was indeed true, that Paul was timid and afraid. It does, I think, however, proves that he was modest and he was unobtrusive when he was in their presence. You know, he was calm, gentle. Now that he's away, some other people come in and tell him and say, Did Paul really say that? <laughs> well, they're challenging him. And, of course, some of their persons around are beginning to believe that. As you look at verse 2, it says, Paul says, I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness. You mean he could be bold? With such confidence as I count on showing. So Paul said, I can deal with this. He's count on showing this boldness to, with, against some who suspect us, include the other members who were with him, of walking according to the flesh. Hmm. Some people call you. Did anybody ever accuse you of not being a Christian? And a lot of people say, and they say they are a Christian. And they, they, that's how they normally slide it in. You know, if you say something to them that they were doing wrong, and you do that, and you Where's your mercy? Where is your grace? And because you do that, and they say, and they're talking with Christian, well, it's a similar thing here is going on with Paul. And he says, Again, I beg you that when, and see his heart, I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness. Don't let me get royal, don't let me get rowdy with you. With such confidence as I count on showing, I plan to do this against some who suspect me of walking according, or us, walking according to the flesh. Paul said that he would be compelled to use severity against those who accuse him of walking in the flesh, being governed wholly by the worldly motives and policies, uh, or policies of the world. That is basically what they're saying Paul is doing, falling Paul, Paul straight. You know, Paul is following worldly examples. He is walking according to the flesh, being governed by those uh, principles and motives of the world. In essence, they charge or accuse Paul of not being governed by high and holy principles, but rather he had personal, carnal interest or ambitions or love to just dominate. You know, somebody say, anything like that because you like position, like power. That's all. You know, look, look at him there. You know, look at her there kind of thing. And that's what they're accusing Paul of. In essence, they were saying that he just liked to be popular. Popularity—that's all he wants. That's what they take that for. They, they ask anybody willing to lead this ministry, and you gently raise your hand, and then mother one say, "Look at him. See there? That's like billet." They don't say that no more. That's old word, eh? billet. <laughs> but people will do that. The person who is doing it, who is in ministry as a soldier, will you allow that to stop you from serving? when God has gifted you and given you the opportunity to serve him in that capacity. These people, they were saying that he was bankrupt, that he was destitute of any indication of spiritual endowment or certainly any divine commission. And Paul again says, I beg you, because he's telling these people, before I come, get this straight, because when I come, I, I, I come to clean house. Ooh, he has a little bigotty and you already told me that from your indication earlier, from the raising of your hand, that he didn't weigh as much as you, and he wasn't as tall as you. So this is a little man with a hard mouth, and this is but this boy. Verse three: For though we walk, I like the judo Paul is using here. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So much flesh in this. You see, this this, this is a lot of meat. You know, what is he saying here? For though we walk in the flesh. We are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, see, they're accusing him of walking in the flesh, and that has a negative connotation. And then Paul agrees, for though we walk in the flesh. Because, see, flesh could also mean, I'm just human. I'm only human. And so Paul is turning that, using the same word, yeah, we're human. And I say, wow, that's poor. Paul is good like that. Notice how Paul counters the, the malicious false statement made by some, by claiming not to be exempt from the fact that he was indeed human. He said, yeah, I'm human. I, I agree. And therefore, subjected to the same frailties and sorrows and afflictions that all humans experience. Imperfections of the very best of humans have something wrong with them. And Paul is not denying that. But it is important to note that every Christian, as I mentioned earlier, is a soldier under the banner of their general. And that is Jesus Christ. Second Timothy, uh, it says there in Second Timothy, Paul, talking to his child in the faith, Timothy says that he is not, that is the soldier, is not to be entangled in civilian pursuits. Life is a warfare with Satan. And uh, Brother Anton mentioned some of those earlier in his, his reading um, just during Before the Last Song. Against Satan and his principalities and powers, and dark powers of darkness, and with the world at large. That's who you're fighting. So if you are a Christian and you think you have put down your weapon, bad move. All right, bad move. But as I said as I said earlier, it is unfortunate that the person who is supposed to be a fellow soldier with you, he he want he want jikir, you know, and you 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 thought when you thought you're having a little reprieve, which is most unfortunate. Timothy says that, again, Paul says to Timothy that he, that is the soldier, is not to be entangled in civilian pursuits. You must understand what your role is. Once you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you join the army. The soldiers fight. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare... Notice how Paul is using these analogies. this This is war. For the weapons of our warfare are not... Of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. This suggests to me that there are some weapons that could be of the flesh, but not the ones Paul is using. Some people use other weapons of the flesh. Now what could possibly be some weapons of the flesh? What do people use today? If you recognize who the enemy is, that will dictate to you what kind of weapons you should use, right? As a professional hunter of birds, me, Fowler, there are certain weapons that I choose to use when I go hunting. We do not depend on weapons of the flesh in the world. Today, if you think about war, what's happening in any part of the world today, you can check out what they use, you know, missiles of various sorts, different caliber guns, um, depending on different range that they want the projectile to go. And the force, what it is made out of so that it can penetrate certain armor. It will depend on your enemy. But Paul is saying the warfare that he's in, the warfare that we are in, are not physical. And sometimes we forget that. But the warfare or the weapons of the world or the flesh, some people use eloquence. They feel because they can speak so well, I can swing some people. That is impressive. So they use eloquence. Or they use wealth. Maybe they use their talent or how smart, how talented they are. Some people even use their attractiveness, their beauty, or some other external aid to which people of the world rely on. But Paul instead, rather than those things, he says that our strength and our conquest are derived from God alone through the force and power of scriptural truth as dispersed or launched through the sword that is the word of God or the So that is the Word of God through the agency of the Holy Spirit The Word of God is indeed an armory When that Bible that you walk around with or you have stashed on your shelf at some place That's your armory, all kinds of weapons inside of that All kinds of protection inside of that But the question is, do you pick up the armory? Do you go in? Do you you know where to find what kind of weapons you need for the battle that you're fighting? Are you protecting yourself? Um, are you putting on the appropriate uh, piece to protect, to protect you? Again, uh, thanks, Brother Antoine. Again, again, I, I see that all as being orchestrated by God because you read it exactly. So for me not to do the same. Um, we have in this armory, you have defensive um, uh, part of your tool. They are weapons, but you also have offensive. So those that for defense, you have those tools so that you can refute errors of the wicked one, because they will um, put out things that are not true. Are you able to defend it? And say, that's not true. Then go to scripture to find it. But you can say, I know, but that's, I never heard, I didn't know that was there. You didn't know that you had a weapon in your arsenal that you can use to refute the, the lies or the errors that are out there in the world. And so the Word of God is indeed an armory for defensive purposes, but also for offensive purposes as well. There are things in the armory that you can go to, that you can use as weapon. The helmet. What does the helmet protect you from? What does that do? Your head. And those days, the helmet also had a little piece that comes down here because people are concerned about their temple. Hey. A, you still at your temple, right? Yeah, the side of your head. You know, and so a little piece comes down to protect that vulnerable area of your head. But so that's only protection. What if you go to war and all you had was a helmet? Something over your breastplate, you know, um, to protect something, I guess, that's under your breastplate that you thought is valuable enough to protect, you know, or the vulnerable parts. And, um, and maybe, I don't know, and that's, I guess, it. You don't need that shield because you already got this piece covered. And you just go ahead and say, come on, let's, let's get it on. Um, now, there are people have all the other stuff. Um, what do you think, just hypothetically thinking, um, how much damage are you going to cause on the other side? Well, we'll say rest in peace, <laughs> dust to dust. All right. <clears throat> you need some offensive weapon as well—the sword of the word. Know what the word says, know when to use it, and how to use it. And so again, that's scripture. And so it's important that you understand that, but not only understand but apply it, because you need that to establish—not only to establish truth, but and doctrinal truth, but to secure it as well. So when you present, you say, here's what the Bible says, boom, and here's it. And I leave it up to you now, and I will defend that. But can you defend? Do you, can you defend? What is the reason why you believe what you believe? If challenged, can you use your Bible? Can you go in your arsenal and pull out the appropriate weapon to stop them in their track? Or would you say, hold on, I'm come back. It's okay if the enemy waits for you, <laughs> you know. And you can go and bring some up, Bring the gang, you know. But it's available for you. See what's happening here to Paul. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We're not using eloquence and wealth and talents and learning and beauty and all those other stuff. Because that's not who our enemy is. He says that we are using, and what is this for? To destroy the stronghold. By the way, that word stronghold is only used here in the New Testament. He says this instead in verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, here's what I did. I look at the last word in verse 4, a stronghold. Then I see because it has destroy stronghold. And then I look at verse 5, and then it says we destroy arguments, and I merge the two. Because I guess those strongholds are arguments. So people will put up some fancy talk, some philosophy, the, um, some highfalutin sound of things, these learned people, people from academia, and say, boy, that sounds good. We say this sometimes, that when we send our, p- our children to college, they come back different. And you say they grew up in the church. They've been here from Sunday school. Yeah, we little children. And then they go to college, and after the first month, because the professor <clears throat> and all the mother people said, and they they smart. I didn't understand a the thing they say so, but they said, I hear one thing they said, that the Bible is not true. And I said, wow, you have been fooled by those people. Where were you from? Bahamas. And then you swallow. And for a little church on Collins Avenue. And that's what they taught you. And they said with such confidence and smug that you thought, I better be quiet in this class. You know, oh, tell me more. And so they raised themselves up as if they know more than what the Bible says. And our children tend to believe that. And so that's a problem. Paul says here that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Do you know that there are those who think that they know better than God? They do. That's what they actually think. And so what Paul says, we will take every thought captive. See, this is war. I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to take them captive. What do you think he's going to do with them? And he's going to do this simply in obedience for Christ, or through Christ. Destined for destruction, they were every argument or reasoning or exalted opinion against the knowledge of God. They are headed to be captured by Paul. The various entrenched systems of paganism, false philosophies, and the reasoning of the enemies of God will all be neutralized. Every exalted opinion and those things about humanity or or humanism, respecting the purity, because some people say the human heart is pure. You know, yikes. And the dignity of the human nature, all of the pride of the human heart and its understandings are vain self-confidence and a destined for captivity. Popery, Pope, sunk before Protestantism. By the doctrine of the unity and the eternality of the divine nature, the apostles destroy hedonism with their plurality of idols and the generations of... They're gods, because one god begot another god. And they're man-made deities, as you know from some of these cultures where they say, everybody has their own god. Scripture, the word of God destroys them all. Even the pretentiously sublime doctrines of Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics in general succumb before the simple preaching of Christ crucified. His agony, his bloody sweat, his cross, and his passion His death and his burial and his glorious resurrection and ascension. All of these, when presented to them, all of their arguments and lofty thoughts succumb. That's our God. That's our Jesus. Verse 6. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Do member Jericho? Paul seemed here to be suggesting that I, I don't want to come and tell you there are some things you all need to sort out. You all need to separate some of these people who are creating the problems for uh, discipline in the body. Otherwise, when I get there, you know, I, it, you know I don't, a lot of people are going to probably be hurt by what he's going to say to them because they already accused him in verse 1. That hey, he only is talk hard when he's not here. But when he's present, he's like a little... Lamb, gentle. He's humble. Paul is not prepared to do that. But if they would see the other side, Paul is warning them, look, I don't want to be as harsh and severe when I get there. Against this charge, and I I think of Jericho. Um, Do you remember the the lady who, um, when they walked around, how many times they walk around Jericho? Oh, of yours, they say, two, boy, I would throw my shoe at you. Seven times, okay, walked around Jericho. What was the, there was one person there who was saved, right? Um, and a family? Nobody? There was a woman? Ray? All right, okay, Rahab. All right. Um, how did that come about? Do you think she, she, had, she helped the spies, right? And they told her what to do, all right? And she had a little, a little code, what they must do, is because when the army comes in, they're going to take care of everybody. But she had to be preserved. You know, and so the little signal was given. Now, see, Paul is doing almost something similar here in terms of saying, look, you'll get it straight before I come. And that's why he's saying it. But they may have misunderstood and thinking that, hey, he's shy or he's timid. He's scared to deal with discipline in the church. That's not the case. Being ready to punish every disobedience. Now, wait a minute. Punish? How could a leader, because they're challenging his apostleship, how could the leader, how could you punish people? How did the apostle? Do you, can you think of any examples in scripture where the apostle punished somebody in the church? Because that's so unkind, ungodly, no grace. Well, while you're thinking so loudly, do you remember Ananias and his wife? You know, do you, yeah, and do you remember the apostle? I think they used to call him Peter, yeah, in Acts, yeah, chapter 5 ish. And what happened there? You think he was a little severe? He couldn't give them a break. You know, like, you know, they had the right to choose, but you thought that was was harsh. What if that was still happening or had happened here today? We need a new graveyard, (laughs) you know, because and the undertakers would be in business, you know. Um, See, the apostle had been given this authority, and they used it. You remember the other guy who was trying to imitate? Um, Paul, Ellie, I call him for short. You know, the sorcerer. And then um, the apostle said, you remember what he said to him? He didn't drop down dead. What happened to him? He picked up sign language, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the apostle then given God endowed power to make things happen. And he used it. Paul is saying, when I come, I don't want to use it. But if, here's the... Let me just... Let me talk faster, and listen quicker. Against the charge that Paul was a... Call him a poltroon. All right? That simply means that he is the superlative coward. If you want somebody who's really chicken, that's Paul. That's what they call him. He was ready to... But now that's what they charge Paul. Paul was now ready to inflict severe, deserved punishment on those who have violated the laws of Christ. Paul delicately, though intimated that, at the time, the complete obedience of the church at large was yet incomplete. In other words, the church, there was quite a number of people there that were still not following the directives that were given in terms of um, church conduct. And he didn't want to come in and create that kind. That's going to be a painful experience. And so he was trying to avoid that. For this cause, he hesitated to punish the disobedient. The church was, in, was to disconnect or discontinence, or to resist and to oppose the enemies of the Redeemer. Those who were there, but their actions, their words, said that they were not following Christ. Paul is telling them, separate yourself from them. Do you remember somebody else in the Old Testament? Like, separate yourself from them, because something you know, happened. And sometimes you always do that, sometimes. Yeah, you say, look here, boy, you say that? Boy, I stand over here, when a lightning strike, I won't be near you. Paul is telling the believers here at Corinth to do something similar. Separate yourself from these people who are obstinately resistant, incorrigible. These are the refractory people, hard-headed. The apostle was not in haste to pull up the tears, lest at the same time he pull up the wheat also. And as I mentioned earlier, the person, because everybody is in some degree is interconnected. And so when you are disciplining this particular person because they are either by blood or just great friendship, when this person hurts, and that's the way it should behave. Because when one hurts, everybody hurts. When your toe hurts, you don't walk off and say, well, that's my toe business. Have you already hurt? No. You say, I'm hurting, all right, because it's part of the entire body. And so Paul, again, he wanted to minimize any what I call collateral damage when he arrives, you know. So I don't want, when I shoot <laughs> I don't want the innocent people getting away. So you all separate yourself or get it straight before I come because I come in a blazing, shooting all double barrel, bang, bang, you know, get it straight. Until the church at large was prepared to separate itself, uphold and sustain any discipline that was imposed Well, the desired oppositional effect would be lost And that is so true Unless we are prepared to put in place a discipline and apply it And unless the whole church agrees with it The effect of the discipline and the cause of the discipline to begin with will be minimized neutralize unless the whole body understands why it is necessary to apply. Paul is being charged of being a chicken. That's the first six verse. The next time they call him, they call him something else. They say he's weak, he's puny, he's talk bad, and some other things. And they say he's bigoted. he's go where he had no right to go. You know? And sometimes people do that when you are serving in whatever capacity. I want to encourage you like Paul. To use scripture. Know what your purpose is. Know that we are all soldiers. We have one general under one banner. That is Jesus Christ. The church belongs to him. He is the chief shepherd, not those other persons. They are under shepherds, and if you're a particular ministry, wherever that is, serve but remember who you are ultimately serving. Don't get tied up in terms of personalities. It is Christ or who you are serving. And so don't allow other persons to stop you from serving. Christ. Don't drop out of the army by putting down a weapon because somebody tell him, said, look at you showing off. just because you don't take out two people. And I, and, I, and I take out one yet. You know, you could show off now. So don't, don't let that bother you. You've been called to serve, serve. And serve with gladness. I stop here this evening. Next time, Lord willing, we'll see what they call him and we'll see really how weak Paul is in the following part of this particular chapter and maybe beyond. But the entire book, you will see Paul is defending the fact that ministry is what it's all about in uh, Second Corinthians, ministry. But under God, and God provides the resources. Not only that, he provides experiences as well. And you will hear Paul talk about his experiences and the resources he had. And sometimes he said to brag, and I read the verse 18 talks about if you need to brag, brag that about in the Lord. You know, that's it. Nothing else. I'm not bragging about I had this vision. Not it. But since you all need to know, let me tell you what I've gone through You know, before you all tell me, but you only have no right to come tell me how I should be here. Let us pray. <laughs> our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have allowed Paul to experience and for him to put it to paper and so that we can have this as a part of our, our whole context of body of truth and written form for the word that we can apply. And it is so relevant to where we are today. Thank you for the relevancy of your word. It's always timely. Lord, I pray that as we seek and we continue to minister in the various areas in terms of the body of Christ and in our workplace as we represent Christ, that you will bring to our consciousness the word of God so that we can truly use it, um, sometimes as defense and sometimes as an offense of weapon when we need to, not for ourselves, but to bring honor and glory to your name. Thank you for this opportunity this evening. And now as we leave here, Lord, we pray that you will go with us again so that we can again extol your praise and your glory to those that we have the privilege of interacting with. These things, Father, we ask in the name of your Son and all of your children here said, Amen.